Hey, mark your calendar. Eric Paulson, Representative Eric Paulson, actually held a town hall meeting today for the first time in, looks like seven years. I, I think uh, the Uptick live streamed actually his last one seven years ago. Did you go today? There were three of them. Uh, we want to hear from you if you did. 952-946-6205 a little later on the program. Uh, Star Tribune was at the first one, as were uh, a bunch of media. It's It was a uh, community center in Hamill. And apparently a lot of people uh, were, uh, were there, but uh, the Star Tribune is saying it was stacked with constituents who seemed to want to have Paulson defeated in November. Imagine that. So were you one of those folks? Uh, we want to hear from you a little bit later on the program. Also, speaking of uh, being able to witness things, the uh, DFL and Republican conventions are coming up this Friday and Saturday and Sunday for the DFL. And the uptake is going to be live streaming all those things from Duluth, where the Republicans are, and Rochester, where the Democrats are. And we're going to be able to do it if you support us. We've got a fund drive going right now at theuptake.org. And we have almost hit our goal. We are very close. We set a goal of $3,000, not a huge amount, actually, considering what we're trying to do. But we are uh, we are like 76% of that right now. And we've got just like a day or so left here to do it. So I'm hoping you, if you want to see that stuff happen, can get over to theuptake.org, click on that, donate, put us over the top, and uh, then sit back and watch uh, you know, the the uh, what the other media isn't doing, which is live streaming both of those conventions, which are happening at the same time, and they're picking their gubernatorial candidates, they're endorsing them. There's all sorts of uh, policy being discussed, and if you're a policy nerd or a political nerd, you will love this. So help us out by uh, by doing that. But first, I want to talk about uh, gas prices. Now, you may recall that uh, before he was president, Donald Trump criticized President Barack Obama for rising gas prices, saying the president has power over them. Now, under now President Donald Trump, we've seen gas prices spike in the past few months to around ooh, three bucks nationally. Uh, that's three dollars a gallon. That's up nearly 50 cents a gallon from just a year ago. Now, was Trump right that the president has power over gas prices? And if so, how much is Trump's decisions contributing to the high price you're paying? Joining us with an analysis is former Interior Department Deputy Chief of Staff during the Obama administration, Matt Lee Ashley from the Center for American Progress. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike, for having me on. Good to have you on. So let's let's go with uh, what Donald Trump was suggesting here uh, several years ago. How much power does the president have over gas prices? It's actually quite limited, uh, but there is some responsibility that uh, an administration does have in uh, in influencing oil prices and gas prices. Um, geopolitical factors are obviously at play in the swings in global uh, oil markets. And also an administration can make decisions that have a big impact on how much consumers have to pay at the pump. Uh, the biggest uh, being uh, decisions about uh, fuel efficiency standards in vehicles. Uh, so for example, the Obama administration uh, uh, raised fuel efficiency standards for vehicles and, and as a consequence, cars are getting uh, cleaner and getting more mileage the Trump administration is uh, now uh, starting a process of rolling back a number of those uh, improvements. So that's going to cost families money in the long term. Uh, those improvements, are the car manufacturers likely to go along and say, hey, we don't have to do that. We're just going to roll that back. Or is there, is there comp foreign competition might keep that in place? Would California's standards keep that in place? What's likely to happen with that? Uh, it's a bit of a tricky situation for the for the car manufacturers because, as as you say, uh, global competition is improving. Uh, global competitors are building uh, more efficient vehicles, and you know we we all know what happened when American uh, car manufacturers fell behind a few years ago and needed bailouts from the federal government. And it was in fact after those bailouts from the federal government that uh, U.S. manufacturers made big strides in improving the the technologies in their vehicles, and as a consequence, they're selling a lot more vehicles. And so dramatic uh, rollbacks of uh, vehicle efficiency standards uh, and uh, some of the big cuts we're seeing in investments uh, in uh, advanced vehicle technologies could really uh, have a big impact on uh, the competitiveness of the U.S. Uh, uh, vehicle industry globally. Uh, so, you know, there, there may be a few 
vehicle manufacturers that are uh, clamoring for you know uh, looser standards here and there. But uh, in in terms of the the health of the industry long term, the U.S. manufacturers should should be leading the way in fuel efficiency. Now we mentioned that gas prices here have uh, risen fifty cents a gallon. I mean we're, we have spikes that happen in the market. But is uh, any is Trump's desire to get out of the Iranian nuclear agreement playing any kind of part in this whole thing? Well, if you look at the period of time around uh, President Trump's formal announcement that he was going to pull out of the Iranian nuclear agreement, you see some funny things happening in global oil markets. Uh, you know, uh, listeners will remember, you know, in uh, over the period, of course, of about five or six weeks this spring, we saw President Trump tweet about uh, more and more criticism about the Iranian nuclear agreement. We saw the announcement that John Bolton would be taking over as, as his national security advisor. Uh, John Bolton is a very vocal critic of the Iranian nuclear agreement. So global oil traders um, saw the writing on the wall and they began to speculate rightly that the administration was bound to pull out of that agreement. Uh, so in that period of time, uh, global oil prices rose uh, $7 per barrel and gas prices here in the United States jumped uh, $0.15 cents per gallon. Uh, so yes, the, the decision to pull out of the Iranian nuclear agreement has had an impact on global oil markets and as a consequence, uh, consumers are paying more at the pump this summer. I thought at one point here we had an oil glut that was uh, forcing down oil prices. It was uh, taking the the newly made oil millionaires in North Dakota to uh, suddenly be ruined and uh, kind of depress the industry there. What happened to all that? What happened to all that oil? It's a a story that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention, actually. Um, About three years ago, Congress passed a bill that uh, reopened uh, U.S. exports of crude oil. Um, There had been restrictions for a couple decades or uh, several decades on on crude oil exports from the United States. Uh, And so over the last uh, three years, increases in U.S. oil production have been uh, more than offset by exports to foreign countries. We're actually keeping less U.S. crude oil in the United States today than we were three years ago. So, you know, we're, you know, we often hear these arguments about if we just drill more, drill more, drill more here at home, that gas prices will go down. Well, that's really not how uh, oil markets work. And certainly with uh, increases in U.S. crude oil exports, um, U.S. consumers uh, are likely to see little to no benefit from massive uh, new drilling projects in the United States. Yeah, I remember so much. It was drill, baby, drill. That was the uh, the chant, and and now it's uh, drill, baby, drill, and uh, send it on a pipeline and uh, to a different country. And by the way, we'll, we'll we'll have that pipeline go through the U.S. And if it leaks, too bad. Yeah, that's right. And you know, we are uh, hearing the Trump administration um, carry a similar refrain to drill, drill, baby, drill. They've proposed a, a massive expansion of offshore drilling. Ninety percent of America's oceans would be open to drilling under what the plan that Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke has put forward. The Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is now on track to be uh, sold out for oil and gas drilling. Um, and the fact is, uh, a lot of those resources are likely to be exported um, into the global market if they are to be developed. Uh, and ultimately, they that is a, a path to just increasing our uh, dependence on, on oil, period. Uh, and really, you know, as we've seen in the last uh, uh, several years, the way to actually drive down consumer cost is through choice and giving consumers alternatives of cleaner, uh, more fuel-efficient vehicles, renewable energy uh, technologies at home that they can choose from, uh, and and building out a a set of choices so that our entire economy isn't just powered by uh, a couple fossil fuels uh, and that we are entirely at the whim of of big fluctuations in these uh, global markets. Well, it sounds like the United States here is producing more oil. We're pumping a lot of it. The consumers are paying more. Who's making the money then? Well, I, I think there's very little surprise here uh, in who's making the money. There have been uh, the, the biggest five oil companies operating in the United States. Um, they have reported 17.7 
billion dollars in profits in the first three months of this year. That was uh, uh, more than a 40% increase over just a year ago. Uh, so, uh, you know, increases in gas prices, increases in oil prices, uh, the biggest beneficiaries are oil companies uh, when that happens. Um, we did a calculation a few years ago when oil prices last jumped as rapidly and found that uh, essentially you could you could assume that for every penny increase in the price of gas here in the United States that those same big five oil companies would be able to report an extra two hundred million dollars in profits in a single quarter so there is just a very strong correlation between uh, gas prices going up and oil industry profits going up and of course those profits are coming from consumers having to pay more at the pump for their fuel we're speaking with Matt Lee Ashley from the Center for American Progress. We're talking about oil prices and the what's happening with the you know the entire energy market. So here we are. We're we're pumping more oil. We're sending it overseas. We are you know there's this resurgence in fossil fuel industry. What's the long term danger here? Uh, are we are we facing possibly that we may be setting ourselves up for a problem down the down the road? I think that's. The long-term ambition in the United States has long been to cut our dependence on foreign oil, and uh, we have been on a path to doing that. I think in recent years, um, there's been a growing recognition that we need to be not just cutting our dependence on foreign oil, but cutting our dependence on, on single supplies of energy, so reducing our reliance on oil period and expanding our uh, the diversity of energy options that consumers have available to them. So that means more hybrid vehicles, more electric vehicles, it means more wind, more solar, more geothermal. Uh, and to, to have a truly comprehensive and cleaner energy policy, that means you need to uh, be investing in a variety of different energy sources uh, and, and not putting your thumb on the scale of, of some of the oldest and most polluting sources of energy. And that's just what this administration is doing. They have given uh, massive tax breaks to the oil industry uh, through the last tax bill, the tax bill that passed late last year. Uh, they have made big cuts to investments in renewable energy. And we are seeing this assault on, on vehicle efficiency standards, as we've been talking about, uh, that ultimately will are aimed at slowing the progression of clean energy technology in the United States. Uh, and this long-term uh, reliance on, on oil is uh, not good for consumers. It's also not good for uh, U.S. competitiveness in the world. So if we're more reliant on oil, which is shouldn't be the policy, does this mean that we're going to be more we're going to be subject to what we've been seeing here in the last uh, several months that we're going to have big spikes in gas prices? Yeah, I think that's right. Um the we just never know what's around the corner when it comes to the price of oil. Um you know, the world oil markets are um very fickle. They rise and fall with um, wars that happen, threats of war. They rise and fall with uh, the whims of traders uh, and speculation in the markets. And when you think about it, you know, American families this month are paying about $30 more um, than they did a year ago uh, to fill up their cars. And, you know, for Donald Trump, that may not seem like a lot of money, but when you're trying to make the budget add up, that is a lot of money. And it is, you know, we shouldn't have to constantly be watching what the world oil price is for, for families to be able to plan and to make their uh, make ends meet. And so that's right. You know, the more reliant we are on oil, the more we are reliant and dependent and subject to these uh, crazy uh, fluctuations in world oil prices. And, and ultimately, it makes us you know, less economically secure and less uh, secure on a national security standpoint. All right. We've been speaking with Matt Lee Ashley from the Center for American Progress. It sounds like gas prices uh, could be an up and down summer this uh, this coming year. And we, we are facing some real problems there. Matt, thank you so much for your analysis on this. Mike, thanks for having me on the show. All right. Hey, folks, we're going to take a break here, but the phones are going to be open next. Uh, 952-946-6205. Eric Paulson's Town Hall. Did you happen to go today? Did you happen to get to one of those? I know they're still going on. What did you see in here? I'm interested to get your report, your citizen report here. Also, 
Uh, Spygate, a Republican congressman, says that uh, <laughs> this is not anything. So what's the White House response? We'll get that more next year on the Mike McEntee Show. What do we do with the cars and trucks that are donated to Auto Technical? We help families with transportation. Sometimes they break down in tears, they're so relieved. Kids jumping around saying, oh, now we can go see Grandma. Do something great. Donate that car or truck to Auto Technical. Call me. Call Auto Technical at 612-919-5526 or online at autotechnical.org. Hi, this is Paul Metz inviting you to listen to the Wall of Power Radio Hour every weekend on AM 950. We are now in our third year of broadcasting on the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Min Post has called us one of the 22 most independently entertaining and cool radio shows in the Twin Cities. We feature cool people from all walks of life and from all 50 states. Every Saturday at 6 p.m., we played Sunday at 4 p.m. on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. The number one source of the Twin Cities gay scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities Gay Scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ Media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com. It's a great day for a bike ride. What's that? You can't find your bike? Oh, it has a flat. No problem. Take it to Nokomis Cycle, the hardest working bike shop in town. They're celebrating their 23rd year in business. In that time, they've mastered the art of friendly, dependable service. So keep life and your bike moving with Nokomis Cycle, working harder to make you go faster. Nokomis Cycle at the corner of 46th and Bloomington Avenue South in Minneapolis or at NokomisCycle.com. Mike McEntee back with you here on AM 950. Representative Eric Paulson held a town hall today. He actually met with constituents for a lot of people, a lot of congressmen. That wouldn't be big news, but it's been seven years since he's done that, at least in one that's been announced to the public, that people can show up, people can ask questions. It's not over a telephone. You know, a real thing like, you know, we're used to. I want to know if did you happen to go? There were three of them. They're they're still going on, I believe. The first one was in Hamill today. The Star Tribune got over there. By the way, if you did go, 952-946-6205. I'd like to hear what you saw or or heard at the uh, at at the uh, town hall. Um, the Star Tribune is reporting that he got some tough questions on guns, tax policy, global warming, and uh, President Trump and. Uh, you got to remember, Paulson here is in a district that Trump lost by more than nine percentage points this time around, and Dean Phillips has been getting a lot of excitement here amongst Democrats in the 3rd Congressional District. So, as you might expect, Paulson was trying to distance himself from Donald Trump. He says that uh, he, uh, let's see, what is it? He says uh, when it comes to Russian meddling in the U.S. elections, which, of course, uh, you know, Donald Trump has been ignoring. He scolded the White House, saying the administration is not giving it the same attention I think it deserves. And then he says, I've been on the opposite uh, side of the of the president on immigration. And then when it came to guns, he said some of the positions the NRA had taken, I have taken the opposite side. Now, it doesn't really say what those positions are. And I know there were probably harder questions than that, but I'd like to hear what you think. 952-946-6205. If you were there, we've got a couple people on the phone. Uh, let's see, let's jump to, uh, let's, let's jump to our first caller. Brett, just uh, bring up our first person here who is, was at the meeting. Let's go ahead. Um, we'll go Adam and Edina first since he was right okay, at the Ad- meeting. Adam was at the meeting. Okay. Hey, Adam, uh, tell us, so uh, tell us what you saw at the meeting. Um, so the meeting this morning oh, Adam, was in Hamill, which is up in uh, Medina, never been there. Uh, the meeting room was, uh, first of all, I should say that uh, I found out yesterday that I got one ticket, one pass to go to the uh, town hall, mm-hmm. and um, 
so had to arrange to make sure I took some time off work. Uh, very short advance notice, but I made it work. Um, got up to the uh, Hamill, uh, I believe, Hamill Community Center. Yeah, tiny. that's what it was. The room wasn't very big. I think I, I actually, as soon as I came in, I counted the chairs. There was maybe 114 chairs. Um, but uh, all things, uh, I, I read the article as far as the Star Tribune reporting is concerned. It was fairly accurate. I thought people were were fairly engaged, uh, fairly respectful. I mean, it stopped short. It, it stopped short of calling it a, an angry mob. It was definitely a a, a fired-up crowd. Um, I, I, I'd say maybe three or four people that seemed to be pro Eric Paulson, but it was it was a thoroughly riled-up crowd who uh, I would say were were came to the meeting armed with questions, um, ready to be answered. Um, when when Eric Paulson would answer the questions, he did so in a manner in which he had sort of his canned responses um, tiptoed around the questions, and I thought the crowd was fairly, um, though respectful, I thought the crowd was not having a whole lot of that, and uh, I, it was kind of a, it was a privilege to watch our congressman squirm a little bit. Let's just put it that way. So he was selling, and the crowd wasn't buying, it sounds like, basically. Yeah, and the questions were sort of, they ran the gamut from, from health care to uh, the environment, gun control. There was multiple questions about gun control. That was a very uh, popular subject. Um, I should state that uh, the process of asking questions, everybody... You, you, the, the town hall, I, I guess this is sort of a standard way in which they run, where you enter and you write down your question and you give your information, and it goes into a blue box, which, though, seemed like it was done with sort of the questions being randomly selected. I noticed that the very first question that uh, Congressman Paulson read was from somebody who was clearly pro-Paulson, so maybe that bought the moderator a little bit of time to sort of skim through the questions and, and pick out ones that he either thought the congressman would be able to answer and ones that would give him some difficulty. My question that I answered, I think he, I didn't get a chance to answer a question. And I think the reason for that was because um, uh, I, 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 put, <laughs> I mentioned the T word. I mentioned my question was about uh, Paulson voting to protect uh, Donald Trump from, disclosing his tax returns uh, mm. as a member of the House and Ways Committee. This was back in 2017. I wanted him to answer to that. My question was not selected, so unfortunately I didn't get to answer or ask my question, I should say. Now, now I, was, uh, I was looking at the recent J- uh, Jason Lewis uh, town hall meeting, and it sounded very similar. Uh, they had people write down questions, but they also allowed people to talk and ask, not ask direct questions, but just make statements that... Uh, that Paul, that excuse me, Lewis came back and kind of randomly, sort of referred to later. Did people get to actually talk and ask questions and get responses from uh, Eric Paulson, or is it pretty much did he just pull it out and read it? So the moderator tried to keep things moving. They made a point of making sure that they could answer, you know, that that the congressman could answer as many questions as possible. There was not really any room for follow up, which was a disappointment to many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, there were people who would be able to stand up and before they asked their question would be able to sort of introduce themselves, kind of say why they were here. Um, uh, and that allowed for people to kind of express their frustration a bit. And, um, there was, uh, there was a couple of people from Indivisible, um, that at least introduced themselves from being from Indivisible, Minnesota. Um, there was, uh, like I said, there was a few people that were, I think, were definitely friendly to congressmen. Um, and those people got a chance to ask their questions. One, one gal, she was, uh, she complimented the congressman as far as some of the work he's done for uh, for Alzheimer's research. I guess he co-sponsored or co-sponsored a bill. I wasn't very familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, overall it was a very successful morning. Um, I was I, I came back 
Though my question, I never got a chance to uh, ask my question. Um, I, I, I was pleased that I attended this morning. It was, it was, it felt good to to be there, and this was something that a lot of us have been chopping at the bit to do. We wanted to hold, you know, our congressman accountable for not just, you know, the votes that he cast but for his radio silence on this administration. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. it seemed that if it went so well, you know, or at least it went so well from your viewpoint, it seemed pretty, you know, civil and everything. You just wonder why Eric Paulson has avoided doing this for like nearly seven years. Well, I mean, I think my, my, my thinking is he had seen some of the other town halls across the nation that had gotten pretty, uh, pretty raucous. And I think he was worried that he wouldn't be able to handle that. But I did overhear some of the staff people as I was leaving sort of breathe sort of a sigh of relief that they thought it went really well. Mm. Um, I think it was interesting. I, I noted this to someone that the body language of the staffers, I think they were bracing for uh, sort of a, you know, a, a pitchfork angry mob <laughs> wanting to get call that. for his yeah. head. And, and we just, you know, we're, we're Minnesota Knights. We weren't going to do that. But it seemed like most of the crowd, you said, and this was Star Tribune is saying too, is that most of the crowd, and these were all randomly selected, allegedly out of uh, people that applied for the tickets, most of them were not exactly happy with uh, Eric Paulson, which really doesn't bode well for his uh, election chances here coming up. Yeah, you know, I... I think it would have been a little too obvious if he had stacked his, you know, he doesn't hold a town hall for seven years and then he stacks it with a bunch of people that are friendly to his, to his, uh, to his voter block. Um, so I think he, he just kind of had to bite the bullet. I mean, it was a very, it was still a very controlled environment. Um, hmm. You know, you, you, I, this was a last minute thing. I was only afforded one ticket. Um, you know, you couldn't bring any signs. Um, we did, I, I don't know if you read this in the article, but we did get to hold up uh, signs, uh, or I should say colored pieces of paper, green if you approve, red if you disapprove. Yeah. And uh, um, most of the time, a lot of us just, you know, whenever the congressman would give us answers, his canned response, um, up went the red cards. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that I, was our I see chance the... to, as a group, be able to, uh, express our frustration and uh, let the congressman know how we how we felt. Yeah, I, I, I see the photo here in the storage being a lot of red there in the photo as people are, are waving those. Mm-hmm. Hey, Adam, we got to move along, but I, I appreciate sure. a that you went and b you took the time to call and tell us what's going on and be a citizen reporter for that. I, I appreciate you helping <laughs> us out today. No problem, Mike. Thank you. Good work. All right, there. you take care. Thank you, Adam. Uh, okay, we'll take a quick call here from Gary, and then we got to get the break. Hey, Gary, uh, you wanted to talk about something else, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, I, I watch. Uh, I, I'm not into computers myself. I'm older, but they never talk about the poverty issues uh, on the corporate TV sets and uh, the runaway greed, uh, greedy healthcare, privatized healthcare system. Even the public television, they don't report on bread and butter issues. Uh, not the way they should. It's, they got Coke money coming in. The public radio, I hear that is similar. And then issues that the progressives really want us to come out now, people like Elizabeth Warren and, and what Bernie Sanders put on the plate. You know, the Sherman Antitrust Act needs to break up the billionaire monopolies and, uh, and the progressive Democrats need to, they need to get the fight up for what the people who want to make a living when you're a worker, not to work and be in debt and, uh, and, uh, put these bread and butter issues out there like Rosa had the New Deal get rid of this terrible, greedy Reagan repackaged Depression Hoover supply side economics. Those are a lot of adjectives put together there, but I think I agree with you on them there, uh, Gary. Hey, thanks for the call. We're going to take a break here, but when we get back, it was decision day for Governor Dayton on a lot of different bills. Uh, some got a signature, some did not. We'll talk about that with Kevin Featherly from Minnesota Lawyer coming up here next on the Mike McIntyre Show. This is Chad, owner of AM950, here to tell you about Snap Construction. They're experts in roofing, siding, window, and insurance restoration. 
They have energy-efficient products available for both residential and commercial properties. This spring, when we needed a company to take a look at a problem with our roof, I called the company I knew I could trust, Snap Construction. (laughs) I've known Ryan, the owner at Snap Construction, for years, so I knew I could trust him. Don't just take my word for it. Check out their reviews online. They are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior contractor online in the metro area. Over the years, Ryan has always said the same thing to me about his work. If we build it, shouldn't we be held accountable for the work indefinitely? He backed that statement up years ago when Snap Construction was a pioneer in offering a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee on all their work. For a free estimate or general questions, call the locally owned company AM950 Trusts Snap Construction at 612-333-SNAP. That's 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. They have financing options available. Native American women and girls have dreams. They don't want to be one in three of every female who has been sexually abused. Many do everything in their power to make sure they are protected from being sexually assaulted, but they could be simply putting their bike away and get raped. Or they could be in their home and a boyfriend, dad, or even husband could rape them. It could be marital rape or date rape. If you don't want to do something, you have the right to say no. You should be believed and supported and understand if you are raped, it's never your fault. Sponsored by the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition. I'm Little Teapot, short and stout. Here is my handle and here is my spell. No, that like this. When I get all steamed up, then I shout, tip me over and pour me out. <laughs> this is WWE superstar Roman Reigns. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. It's Mike McIntyre back with you here on AM 950. Governor Mark Dayton got out his veto pen, but also his signature pen today. Joining us to talk about what he did and did not sign is Minnesota lawyer's Kevin Featherly. Hey, Kevin, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Mike. So uh, a lot of people were uh, holding their breath, hoping that Governor Dayton would sign the uh, the bonding bill. A lot of people, like the Minnesota Zoo, saying, hey, we need all this money. Uh, Governor Dayton did sign it, but uh, he, he didn't exactly like everything, did he? No, he uh, he expressed some reservations, but, he, he, uh, you know, he said something on Almanac last week. It was a little hard to parse, but it sounded like he was saying he would be hard-pressed to veto it. But because of his, you know, his own verbal sort of idiosyncrasies, it was a little hard to gauge exactly what he meant. But it did, he sort of seemed to signal last Friday that he was going to sign it, and indeed he did. Now, now why didn't he like it? Uh, what was it about this that he did not like? It's, I mean, it, it's money, and that's usually good. Right. He said it was deficient in higher ed. Um, it lacked uh, just basic money for maintenance and repair. There's a, a giant, I can't remember how many hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even into the billions of, of what they call deferred maintenance. And that just basically means that state-owned buildings around the state are slowly rotting. And they it costs much more to you know get a building back in shape once it's reached that state than just to maintain it. But the state has, uh, for years been deficient in, in keeping up its own properties. And so it's missing that. There was no money for the U of M med school, or excuse me, med school building that he wanted. It was, it was stuff like that. There were just things in there he didn't like. There was no money for light rail or, or any kind of metro transit, even rapid bus. Uh, so there was a lot that he didn't like, but you know, what was in there I think he felt needed to be preserved, and he went ahead and signed it. Yeah, I, I, he was not happy with some where some of the money was coming from. He says it's being borrowed in a way that uh, is is not is is, un, is unprecedented, and he's worried about what might happen in the future. That where where is that money coming from? Well, there's the LCCMR fund, which is you know that's money that's dedicated to environmental uh, preservation. Mm. It's a trust fund, and they tapped into that essentially to basically increase the number of projects. And as my read on it was that that was really done, and people might prove me incorrect on this, but what I think it was was basically increasing the number of projects that were available in DFL districts. But they were tapping into this uh, LCACMR money. I've heard uh, that that could be the subject for litigation at some point, but I haven't heard that anybody's actually filing anything like that. But he's worried that by tapping into that, by setting this precedent, that you're going to, you know, uh, this is money dedicated 
I think a lot of it comes from lottery funds, and it's supposed to be for preservation, not for these kinds of you know typically bonding projects, which is you know new new facilities, uh, repair of existing facilities. That's not how you clean up the water, so to speak, necessarily. Now it's interesting. You're mentioning all the stuff that wasn't in this. The you know usually stuff is prioritized by different agencies, saying, "Hey, we need this all. Need this stuff. We need this stuff." You're telling me the top Department of Human Services bonding request didn't even make it into this bill? Yeah, it was never. It wasn't in there. Um, that was an attempt. The DHS wanted to get. Uh, there's a program. I, I've forgotten the name of the actual program, but what it essentially is is a program that they put sex offenders into as their sort of last sort of cycle of uh, treatment before they're transferred out into the community. It's a very important program. Uh, what's happening is that judges are assigning more and more offenders to this, but there's no room for them. They're not, there's, there's no space to include these additional new people. And uh, I, I, I don't remember the exact amount of money that was involved in that, but what the governor said today is, you know, Things like this mean that it's just the the legislature turning their back on the problem, sticking their head in the sand. Um, they the, the legislature did include some money for you know additional mental health, um, not facilities. They're not mental health uh, facilities, but basically just treatment um, programs out in the state. But this particular one, which was DHS's top bonding. Um, priority didn't get a penny. Now, and the it governor could also be problematic you know, later on as these more and more people get put into it. Yeah, the, the governor also got out his veto pen, and one of them was the Wild Rice Standards Bill, which is really about water quality. And I'm going deja vu. I thought we did this already. I thought he vetoed it in another bill. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Um, I haven't been following that. That's not uh, something that lawyers cover real well. But I, <laughs> my understanding of the issue is that um, the, the, there's, as he mentioned today, 10 milliliter uh, parts per million. 10 milliliter per million. I can't remember how that works. But there's just a, a trace amount of sulfate that's now allowed in the in the water that where wild rice is raised. But the, that was determined back in the 1940s. So this is based on really old science and new sciences uh, suggesting that that's not only too difficult to attain, it's maybe not scientifically supported. So uh, what Dayton has proposed today with his veto, he's, he, he's not going forward with that bill, but he has proposed, uh, I think, a work group to really dig into the science and propose some new regulations. But, um, and he, he also said he hasn't been enforcing the regulations that exist because, it, and the, the state government hasn't, because it's, it really is just too difficult to know whether or not the current standards have any basis. Yeah. He also he had three other bills that he vetoed. Uh, what what were those? I think one of them had to do with the, the Met Council, which is an organization a lot of people hear about but don't know much about, and there's a big political fight over this. Always, There's always a big political fight over the Met Council. Okay, I guess that's As redundant. He said, it's All the right. favorite whipping boy of, of the Republicans. But um, it, the, the legislature passed um, legislation that would have Changed the governance structure and would have put new people, you know, designated new people into that. And I think he objected to it. There were three counties out of the seven involved that were opposed to the plan. He thought that was too high a ratio of opposition that, you know, you're going into this new idea with, you know, potentially, uh, you know, a rebellion on your hands. But it also, as he pointed out, would um, include some elected officials. There are some people who think that it, when you appoint elected officials to this particular body and, and require that they're county board members and let the municipal officials, that there could be a conflict of interest because the Met Council has sort of an overarching view, sort of a wider scope than each individual government that's underneath of its, you know, sort of area. And he thought that that was a, it could be, he didn't use the word conflict as Ron Latz has done, but he said that mm-hmm. is problematic. And I think that's one of the rationale for vetoing that particular bill. Now, another one he vetoed was uh, the, the protester bill or uh, that was associated with critical infrastructure. Uh, what was his right. reasoning on that? 
Well, uh, I think he's lodging similar to what he did with the veto of the freeway protester bill, but uh, this is a little different. This is something that Dennis Smith, the representative, put forward. And um, what he really wanted to do, and I had a brief interview with him about this. He described what he wanted to do. He said that uh, if an organization trains or encourages or instructs someone to go damage critical infrastructure, and he um, mentioned a particular instance where somebody tried to weld a hole into a pipeline, then the person who offers that guidance or instruction or encouragement uh, would be held liable in the same respect as the people who actually commit the damages. So, you know, that is something that Dayton's kind of dramatically called a Nixonian plan, a Nixonian idea. <laughs> um, you know, because it really, as he, point, as he put it, a mere conversation could, under this law, result in charges of conspiracy. So I, you know, highly problematic. There was a lot of this kind of discussion on the House floor, but it, it passed, obviously, with a large majority in the House. Hmm. Uh, other one he vetoed today was the uh, what's called the MinLar system. This is the, the problem they've been having with the new vehicle licensing system, and there was uh, supposed to put changes in with that. Uh, he, why did he veto it? Because it seemed like everybody agreed that there need to be changes. Um, he said he supported the policy underneath it, but it, it, it requires uh, – I'm just reading his letter. He says it requires changes in the MinLar system that, that don't have sufficient funding to carry it out. He said the legislature has refused to provide adequate funding to improve the system, and so mandating policy changes without any additional funds undermines what he thinks is the established process. Um, that's all very general. There were some – again, I think this was a sort of thing where there was going – there's an effort to put – sort of a oversight, uh, I don't know if it's a working group or what you'd call it, advisory council, but there was an effort to put in sort of a stakeholder group that would have a lot of influence on policy over what happens with MinLars, and I think he thought that was a usurpation of, you know, the Department of Public Safety's authority. That's sort of my surmise on it. Uh, pension bill is going to sign that tomorrow. Big ceremony. All the unions yeah. are very, very happy about that. So after that, is there anything left for the governor to sign or veto? He said not. And in fact, I even checked in to find out if there's uh, any sort of a pocket veto that he's just going to sit on. And I was instructed that, no, that's it. Uh, after tomorrow, he will have emptied the hopper. The coffers are empty. Okay. Uh, yeah. there, was, there, was some, there was some personnel stuff uh, out of the legislature today. Uh, House Majority Leader Joyce Pepin is going to be retiring and leaving the legislature. Why is that? Oh, she's going to take a new job, as okay. they say, in the private sector. Ah, um, but uh, what does that mean? As, it's a, a lobbying job, I think it's <laughs> fair to say. It, it's with the Minnesota Rural Electric Association. And um, it's one of those things where we see this all the time. We, you know, we've seen even a guy like Jim Liebler has, has gone through the revolving door and actually came back through it and, and now he's a legislator again. We've seen a lot of this. The, the, I think it was the Pioneer Press in 2015 did a pretty deep dive into all the folks that had, had gone this route. Uh, and there is no state law that prohibits it. Um, there is no Senate rule that prohibits it. There is, however, a House rule. That mm. prohibits a member from becoming a lobbyist for one year. It's routinely ignored. And in Pepin's case, it's uh, particularly interesting because she's the outgoing committee chair of the House Rules Committee. <laughs> and so she, she did say, I will say, in, not necessarily in her defense, but at least she's offered a rationale for this before. She was quoted, I think, in that 2015 article saying that once you're out of the House, the House has no jurisdiction over you. So she knows that better than anybody. Nah, 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 you can't touch me. I'm out of it. <laughs> uh, our, our former governor, uh, Tim Pawlenty, uh, I've just read here that he is going to be announcing his pick for a running mate tomorrow, strategically just before the uh, Minnesota Republican Convention gets underway. Any indication it's not going to be our current lieutenant governor, Michelle Fishbach? No, uh, Karnak is holding the card to his head, and he, he envisions a redheaded former uh, Senate president who may well be the the obvious choice now you know that's only because it makes so much sense in my mind mm -hmm. you know she's leaving a job i mean if she hadn't resigned from the senate likely could have remained there forever although you know she would have had this cloud hanging over and maybe there would have been continuing legal challenges 
nonetheless, as lieutenant governor, and that's the only post she holds right now, she's out of office come January, unless something else happens, and that something else could be uh, signing on as lieutenant governor to Tim Plenty. Now, if he's elected, as we point out in our last conversation, she's, uh, you know, he, he has a history of giving the lieutenant governor real work to do. You know, he made Caramona the the, the uh, transportation department commissioner, and and you know, there's no reason to think he wouldn't do something like that. So, you know, she may gra- graduate to a position of real authority if all this happens. Well, we'll just have to wait and see, and hold our not hold our breath, but just have to wait and see what uh, the former governor announces tomorrow. We'll be we'll be tuned in for that. Kevin Featherly, you can read him over at minnesotalawyer.com. Hey, Kevin, I really appreciate you uh, updating us on what's been going on today because it was just kind of like a, a massive uh, post-legislative, post-session stuff that happened today, and I was glad you could help us sort it out. Yeah, thank you. All right. Hey, folks, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, phones, 952-946-6205, and some other news I promised that we'd get to. Uh, you're listening to the Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette. 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. It's a good day to be indigenous. Native Earths Radio presents I'm Awake. Our weekly Native American talk radio show will discuss national and local Native American news and events. Local and national guests will help us keep current with Mother Earth, tribal, and Twin City issues. Native American issues are human issues. We invite all people to walk hand-in-hand with our struggles, victories, and achievements. Listen Saturdays at 2 p.m. I am awake. The fourth annual Minneapolis St. Paul Mini Maker Fair is a festival of creativity showcasing the projects of local builders, scientists, gamers, artists, and makers. The Makers Fair is on June 2nd from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Minnesota State Fair Grandstand. Curious about robots? We've got them. Want to learn how to carve wood or weld? Covered. Feel an urge to upcycle odd materials into art? Get inspired. Explore electricity, ride a human-powered Ferris wheel, and discover local resources for makers of all kinds. It's a great day of family fun with interactive exhibits and to maker demonstrations appropriate for all ages, including a special make-and-take area for kids. Plus, there will be live music, street performers, and presentations. The Minneapolis St. Paul Mini Maker Fair is June 2nd from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Minnesota State Fairgrounds Grandstand. Discounted tickets available at msp.makerfair.com. That's msp.makerfair.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for maker profiles and updates on what to see at this year's fair. Mike McEntee back with you on AM 950. Uh, President Trump's uh, Spygate uh, allegations got a, some holes poked into it here recently. Republican Congressman Trey Gowdy, uh, one of the few people to get briefed on the situation last week, told Fox News last night that the briefing vindicated the FBI. Quote, I am even more convinced that the FBI did exactly what my fellow citizens would want them to do when they got information they got, and that has nothing to do with Donald Trump. So this whole thing has been debunked, right? Well, the White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders doesn't think so. Sarah, now that Trey Gowdy, who has actually seen all the classified information on what the FBI was doing, uh, says that there is nothing to the allegations that they were spying on the Trump campaign, and in fact... Gowdy says that the FBI was doing exactly what they should have been doing. Given what Trey Gowdy has said, is the president prepared now to retract his allegation that the FBI was spying on his campaign? No, clearly there's uh, still cause for concern that needs to be looked at. Let's not forget that the deputy director of the FBI was actually fired for misconduct. The president's concerned about the matter, and we're going to continue to follow the issue. But Gowdy was in the briefing. He knows what was done, and he is saying that these allegations are baseless. Again, there was no spying on the Trump campaign. Certainly, the president feels that there is cause for concern and it should be looked at in a 
like I just said, the deputy director of the FBI was fired for misconduct. There are a there are I'm not finished. There are a number of things that have been reported on and that show I think not just for the president but a number of Americans a large cause for concern, and we'd like to see this uh, fully looked into, and we'll continue to follow that matter. Steve, sorry, John, then we're going to keep moving. So you guys, you got that now? Uh, it's baseless. There's no no evidence, but you know we're concerned about it, so you should be concerned too. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five bill from brooklyn center wanted to join in the conversation we were talking earlier about the sulfide standard in the wild rice that uh, governor dayton vetoed today hey bill you had some thoughts on that yeah actually there's uh there's a lot of confusion on the science and the technology of treating sulfate mm-hmm. and uh, i'll try to keep it brief but uh your your previous guest was incorrect about the uh standard coming from science from the 1940s. The uh, 10-part-per-million standard actually comes from 1973, and that was based on observations that wild rice was generally not present and not healthy growing in stands where surface waters were 10 parts per million. Now, the reason for that is that the sulfate goes into the sediments. It's reduced by anaerobic bacteria, the sulfide, and the hydrogen sulfide is quite toxic to the roots. Now, it was hard to treat the 10 parts per million economically, so they did uh, ask the PCA to take another look. They did some uh, careful studies that showed that, yes, 10 parts per million most of the time is the correct answer. However, there are some sediments that have enough available iron that uh, the iron protects the roots for a while. But unless you have inputs of iron as well as inputs of sulfate, sooner or later those waters will be affected as well. Yep. And as far as treatment costs, everybody's been looking at reverse osmosis. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, uh, but we now have a bioreactor technology that's one-tenth the cost of reverse osmosis. Hmm. And that's been proven out at the PolyMet site. Um, I do have a commercial interest in that technology, so full disclosure. Okay. I'm obviously looking to see it used, but you can find out more about that at uh, clearwaterbiologic.com. All right, clearwaterbiologic.com. Hey, Bill, I, I appreciate the, the information. I always say we've got some of the smartest listeners out there, and you just proved it again, and that is correct. That is science from the 70s, and it was information that Republicans have been saying, oh, 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 we'd like to change that because it's old science. No, it's still good science. It's still good science. Uh, that is it for today's show. Uh, a reminder that uh, we are trying to raise money for the uptake to go down to Rochester and up to Duluth to cover the Republican and Democratic, the DFL conventions from gavel to gavel, and we're getting real close. So if you can head over to theuptake.org, stick a few more bucks in the uh, in the coffers there, we will be able to do that. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow. And Mom, thank you for listening.